Well, good morning uh, again. It's great to be with you. I uh, was away for a couple weeks on a fantastic vacation, but I am so excited to be back here worshiping with you. It was great to start uh, our morning off with some 25 person or less in-person services. I would ask you, however, to pray for Peter. This is the third time now he's heard this sermon, (laughs) so he'll be bored, but hopefully you will not be. Uh, I want to draw your attention at the beginning of this message to the geography in which this passage takes place. Verse 21, leaving that place, (coughs) Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Where was that place? The Sea of Galilee. Remember last week, it's where Jesus walked on water. What about Tyre and Sidon? Well, that's about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, why does this matter? Well, this matters because Jesus, well, Jesus was Jewish, and nearly all of his public ministry took place within the boundaries of Israel. This incident, in fact, is the only time that we know of where Jesus, as an adult, left the boundaries of Israel to go into the Gentile or non-Jewish regions which surrounded it. Jesus did this extraordinary thing to reveal an extraordinary kind of faith. Faith that perseveres, faith that improvises, faith that overcomes, faith that lays hold of what God has promised, faith that connects to God's life and power. I wanna talk about how God creates that kind of faith in us. But because this story takes a couple of surprising turns, I wanna start by walking through it in some measure of detail. I'll begin with the context. It is important to understand or to read what happens in this passage in light of what happens in the passage immediately before it. What happens? Well, Jesus gets in a heated argument with his religious critics about cleanliness, about the proper condition in which to approach God. Hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, when God first established worship in the tabernacle, he created a set of guidelines that were designed to help people enter into God's presence. For example, when you walked into the tabernacle, there was a bathtub or a labor, and you would wash yourself, wash your hands, as a way to remind yourself of the need to be repentant and reverent when you approach the living God. There were all sorts of visual aids designed to remind people of the the need to approach God with a measure of intentionality. By the time of Jesus, however, this is hundreds of years have gone by, Uh, there arose around that biblical teaching this extravagant ritual edifice that went far above and beyond what God outlined. This was purity culture on steroids. There were rules, for example, about the kind of clothes you should wear or the kind of food you were allowed to eat, the number of times you needed to wash your hands. And most relevant for our passage today, there were rules about the type of people you were supposed to associate with. And there were strictures around uh, Gentiles and Jewish people being in close proximity to each other, quite literally touching each other, a taboo that we are perhaps now uh, very sensitive to. But that was, a, that was a very hot issue of the day. And Jesus had a major problem with not the biblical teachings, but with the uh, teachings that arose around it, because Jesus discerned in those spiritual disciplines a confusion of means and ends. 
Do you think those practices are going to make you clean before God, he says? Do you think God really cares about the kind of clothes you wear or the kind of food you eat or the kind of people you touch? God cares about what comes out of your heart, the sin or or holiness that emanates from your soul. That's what God is after. The stuff coming in from outside of your body makes little difference. Well, Jesus' critics were not convinced, and Jesus' disciples were kind of clueless. And so I like to imagine our very human, very God, very human Lord, uh, tired and maybe a bit frustrated, wanting to go to a wonderful retreat center about 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Tyre and Sidon. But what's important to remember as we begin to look at this passage now in detail is that this is a region full of Gentiles filled with, according to the standards of that day, uncleanliness. Now what happens? Well, someone who has heard about Jesus and the miracles that Jesus has performed uh, learns that Jesus has come into that region. And so this person interrupts Jesus' retreat, knocks on the door, and cries out, Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly. This is remarkable. Why? Because here's a woman, here's a Gentile woman, and here's a Gentile woman whose daughter is held captive by a demonic spirit. This is a person who lacks every credential necessary to approach God. This is a person who would have been considered unclean in every way that matters. That doesn't stop her. She doesn't care. And I can say, I can can understand why. You know, there are heroes and there are cowards. There are people who respect convention. There are people who flaunt convention. And then there are parents. And parents, when their children are in danger, are neither cowardly nor courageous. They do whatever it takes. Their personality is irrelevant. If their child is in danger, they will stop at nothing to secure their well-being. And that's what this woman does here. She approaches the Lord asking for help. And Jesus' response Verse 23, he did not answer a word. Not a word? Not a word. But she persists. She persists, in fact, to the point that Jesus' disciples grow annoyed and ask him to send her away. Now, at first, I assumed the disciples disapproved of her actions because As we might say today, she was the wrong gender and color. Who do you think you are? Jesus doesn't do this kind of stuff for people who look like you. But it's actually hard to make sense of what Jesus says next, if that's the case. It's more likely the disciples are endorsing her request for the sake of expediency. Something like, Jesus, could you just say the magic word so she'll go home and we can get some peace and quiet? But our Lord does not take the path of least resistance. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he is going to use the temerity of this remarkable woman to teach a valuable lesson. I was sent, he says at first, only to the lost sheep of Israel. My earthly mission, in other words, has limits. 
I came to fulfill what was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I came to fulfill what the prophets prophesied about, what the reign of Israel's great kings pointed towards. And all of those blessings, Jesus says, will flow to the nations, but not yet. And this woman responds, cool theology lesson, Jesus, but I don't have time for that. My daughter is suffering now. She needs help today. So she pushes past the disciples, enters the house, and kneels before Jesus. Help me, she says. And then Jesus says what seems to be the most insensitive thing imaginable. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yikes. Is that as bad as it sounds? Look, any way you slice it, Jesus is referring to this woman as a dog. People in his world referred to Gentiles as dogs because Gentiles were considered unclean. It was a religious slur as much as an ethnic one. This offends us for good reason. And it should surprise us. Surprise us? Yeah, surprise us. Uh, Because of what I said at the beginning about the context for this passage. Jesus has already made clear that he doesn't live in the religious world of pure and impure, clean and unclean, Jewish or Gentile. He doesn't count people as unclean simply because of where they were born. So this is puzzling on the surface. It, it seems that Jesus is contradicting what he just said. It seems like he's reverting to ideas that he just discarded. So I don't think that's exactly what is going on, that Jesus is just channeling the prejudices of his day and this woman has to convince him to think otherwise. No, I think what's happening is that this is a parable more than an insult. It's a metaphor. It's an illusion. I think Jesus is creating a picture, a picture of a family eating at a table and considering whether or not to give the leftovers to their pets. And what's remarkable about this woman, I'm going to say that like three times, but this woman is so remarkable. She intuits what's going on. She recognizes that Jesus isn't calling her a a Gentile dog. Jesus is saying she is unclean in the way that we are all unclean. We are all unclean because by nature, we are set against God. We don't have a lot to bargain with. We don't bring that much to the table. We can't claim God's blessings as a right. And so she responds to this picture that Jesus paints that combines both a challenge and an invitation. And she responds in the language of the picture that Jesus has painted. She says, yeah, Lord, you're right. I may not have a rightful place at the table. I may not deserve your blessings, but who cares? There is enough food at this table for everyone. And it's right for me to have some, for even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus looks at this woman and says, crumbs, for that answer, you're getting the whole loaf. You have great faith. And immediately, her daughter is healed. This is the only time in any of the Gospels that Jesus says a human being has great 
faith. It is perhaps the best compliment Jesus could have given. And he gives it to someone that any reasonable religious person would have been the last to expect to receive it. I may not have a place at the table, she says, but there is more than enough bread on that table for everybody. And I need mine now. This is what it looks like to wrestle with God. This is what it looks like to not take no for an answer. This is what it looks like to have faith that connects to God's life and power. This woman, she holds in her soul two things that I find almost impossible to maintain. On the one hand, she's insistent. She's bold. She's pushy. She needs something from God, and so she asks for it with no apologies or no conditions. But on the other hand, she doesn't claim false prerogatives. She doesn't bargain. And this is the part that is hard. She doesn't disagree with Jesus' theological judgment. I do want to say again, Jesus is not saying she's unclean because of her ethnicity. He's not calling her a Gentile dog. I think Jesus broke down that wall. Jesus is saying, however, that she is unclean, that she is a dog, as it were, in the way that we are all unclean before God. Unclean because of our human propensity to screw things up. Unclean because by nature we are set against God. So she says, Jesus, you're right. It is audacious of me to approach you. You don't owe me anything, but your mercy, your compassion, your sympathy is so vast that the question of whether or not I deserve it is irrelevant. <coughs> it's immaterial. <coughs> I am not asking because I've earned it. I'm asking because your heart is big enough to give it. Uh, the pastor and writer Tim Keller, he describes this kind of faith as rightless <coughs> assertiveness. It's the kind of faith that grace and grace alone makes possible. It's faith that recognizes that we may not bring much into our relationship with God, but we are nevertheless confident that God is determined to be present in our lives for good. This is the kind of faith that connects to God's power. This is the kind of faith that lays hold of what God's promised. It's the kind of faith that makes us strong and kind, that makes us bold and humble. And what I really hope you hear today is that our living God is still in the business of eliciting this type of remarkable faith in us. And not necessarily through challenging words, but through circumstance. Like for example, I wonder how many of you are, are experiencing the pandemic uh, and the, this extraordinary summer and are learning all sorts of things about yourself that you kind of wish you didn't know. I'm learning, for example, about my appetite for, for sloth and selfishness. The national conversation we're having about racial injustice has revealed in my own heart apathy in the face of injustice. God is showing me that I am unclean, that there are still areas of my life that are not under God's influence that I'm disintegrated. What I say with my mouth is not what necessarily I do with my body. 
God is still in the business of eliciting the kind of faith that we see in this woman and us, and it starts with learning uncomfortable truths about ourselves. And the question is, what will we do about it? Will we ignore it and be, uh, you might say, self-righteous or disintegrated? Will we hang our heads in shame and draw back? Or will we lift up our hearts and say, Lord, I may be unfit for your table, I may be unclean, but by your mercy, I belong here. And by your spirit, I will stand up, approach boldly, and eat freely. One of of the most beloved and widely prayed prayers in the English language comes from our Anglican tradition. It's called the Prayer of Humble Access. And it's taken from this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. We typically sing it, but if you were to pray it, you were to say, We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not so worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property or whose nature it is, always to have mercy. Every time we pray or sing this prayer, we are stepping into the shoes of that Canaanite woman, approaching Jesus alongside her and saying, Lord, I may not deserve to be here, but you've called me to draw near. Your grace is greater than my guilt, wider than my wanderings, stronger than my sin. Your property is always to have mercy. May God grant you that kind of rightless assertiveness. Hmm. May God elicit in you the faith that connects to his power. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.